Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, December 1st, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. I feel bad because yesterday I began um, pitching you guys about uh, donating to Commentary as part of your end-of-year giving uh, without realizing that yesterday, as my mailbox filled up every 10 seconds with one or another schnorr that yesterday was officially giving tuesday which is like cyber monday or black friday or something it is now a this is now an internet thing and that the day that i wanted to talk to you about this and try to convince you that uh commentary a 501c3 nonprofit was worthy of your support uh annually as you consider your 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 end of year uh, charitable donations that I was doing so on a day when you would be hearing from 12,000 other people and I know how incredibly annoying that is and I really didn't understand that was what was happening so I apologize for uh filling your brain with the same um you know uh, uh, cup shaking uh that everybody else was doing and I will forbear for the next couple of days except to say if you want to do this go to commentary.org slash donate and that's that's all i'm going to say about that today with me as always executive editor abe greenwald hi abe hi john senior writer christine rosen hi christine hi john and associate editor noah rothman hi noah hi john um so uh interesting developments in the omicron crisis uh the WHO, first of all, we appear to have a grand total of 44 cases in Europe. In Europe, all of Europe, which reminds me of today. Yesterday, I represented the, uh, as it was the publication date of uh, Mel, 95-year-old Mel Brooks's memoir, All About Me. And it reminds me, saying something like there are 95 cases in Europe reminds me of the 2,000-year-old man saying he loves his favorite place to go on vacation is Europe because... And he says, I keep a locker in Europe. So in Europe, where the 2,000-year-old man keeps a locker, there are 44 cases of COVID across the entire continent uh, of, of, uh, of, of, of Omicron variant. So, um, uh, And we are now shutting down our borders. And uh, Biden is about to make a speech, uh, you know, basically uh, saying that uh, if you uh, come into the United States as a citizen or not as a citizen, uh, you will be jumped at the border, handcuffed. Uh, you will be sprayed like Karen Silkwood, and then you'll be thrown in jail or <laughs> some some version of that. But that's only going to happen in February or something. Um, so uh, there, there is. I, I wanted to mention that, and then also mention that um, the the head of BioNTech, the co-founder of BioNTech whose name I cannot pronounce because it has initials, it's Turkish and it has initials and, and diacriticals that I, I'm just going to say Dr. Uger Sahin, although I'm sure it's pronounced entirely differently, told the Wall Street Journal that even if the Omicron variant leads to more breakthrough COVID-19 infections, he believes the vaccines will continue to protect against severe disease. If a virus achieves immune escape, it achieves it against antibodies. But there is the second level of immune response that protects from severe disease, the T-cells, he said. So this contradicts what the head of Moderna said yesterday to the Financial Times that crashed the market on Monday. Uh, so we got uh, mRNA Pfizer saying, don't panic. 
a day after mRNA Moderna says kind of panic. And uh, we have all evidence, as Noah is now going to detail, <laughs> of our federal government launching into full panic mode. Well, not launching yet per se, but sort of lunging in that direction, or at least, you know, stretching with the, the intent to lunge um, and, and doing what they do, what the public health bureaucracy has done since the start of this pandemic is that whenever the political class starts to ease off in response to manifest tangible consequences, negative consequences of their policies, the public health bureaucracy begins to lobby in public um, for a restoration of their preferred preferences. And that's what you referenced moments ago with um, you know the uh, previewing a draconian response out of an abundance of caution to something we don't fully understand even remotely or even a little bit. Um, this dropped in the Washington Post last night has been subsequently confirmed by a variety of news organizations that on Thursday, the president will make a speech. And in that speech, there may be uh, a series of new travel restrictions imposed not just on foreign nationals and visitors with visas, but on American citizens as well, to read from the Washington Post piece, currently, the United States requires pre-departure coronavirus testing for both unvaccinated and vaccinated air travelers to the country. For those who show full proof of vaccination, that test must be conducted no more than three days before a flight's departure. For someone who cannot show such proof, a test must be done no more than one day before departure. The new policy would require everyone to be tested one day before, de one day before departure. And subsequently, Travelers coming back into the country would have to be tested for, an, for coronavirus three days or five days after their arrival in the country. And unvaccinated travelers would have to quarantine for a minimum of seven days, regardless of their testing status. And American citizens, indeed, could be forced to quarantine regardless of their test status and face fines in the event that they police this sort of thing. Face fines if they broke their quarantine, sort of like a South Korean approach that is who knows how that's even enforceable, but at least it's on the table. And according to Celine Grounder, an epidemiologist who advised the Biden team's uh, COVID response, Grounder, yeah. um, if it were up to me to fly, you should be fully vaccinated and we should be testing 24 hours prior to a flight. Um, this is functionally a COVID zero policy. Uh, no cases, not hospitalization rates, not deaths, not... Uh, excessive uh, demands on ICU capacity, cases, trying to limit cases out of a abject terror of a virus that the person who identified it in South Africa now desperately regrets having told anybody about this thing. She has a piece, <laughs> she has an op-ed that is saying, basically, this is crazy. You've all gone insane. It's doing serious damage to my country, South Africa, where everybody, no one can leave now out of for no reason whatsoever, because this is not presenting anybody who I've seen with this variant with bad outcomes. Uh, and you, know, you can tell in her commentary that if she had it to do over again, she wouldn't even tell anybody <laughs> about this thing. Well, it, it, the cynic in me thinks that perhaps the White House leaked to the Post what they're planning on talking about Thursday to get the sort of temperature of the room, right? To see what crazy public health Twitter says, to say what the Republicans, you know, 
think about this, to say what right wing Twitter thinks about this, and then to shape the message accordingly, which is not leadership, right? That there's a kind of, and this is, again, I'm speculating here, but the sense of like, anytime there's any sort of new COVID announcement, we saw this with take the masks on, take the masks off. We, we've seen this at various stages in the Biden administration's handling of this pandemic. They try to read the room and then massage the message to, to hit whatever sweet spot they think they found. They're almost always wrong about where the sweet spot is, and they aren't addressing the actual concerns of everyday Americans about this pandemic. It's surely true that there are trial balloons you know, throughout this pandemic, sure, but who's floating them? Who's, who is talking to the press? Right. And, and what agencies do they represent? Everybody seems to have gone uh, you know, off the reservation, every man for themselves here. Um, when Tony Fauci was out on the Sunday shows talking about how maybe it's time for lockdowns again, we don't know, it's too early, but who knows? That was interpreted as a trial balloon, but was it? I don't know. I don't Good think so. And he was subsequently slapped down by the president. So I think I would I would be just as not surprised if he was going out on his own and, and freelancing. The weird thing this time around <clears throat> is that uh, the panic we're seeing in political figures and uh, public health officials. I'm not sure I see it mirrored in the public generally, even 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 in the public, you know, not our people, so to speak, but even in those who are prone to get worked up over uh uh, headlines about a scary COVID development. I don't think they are this time around. Uh, maybe, uh, uh, you know, they can be driven to panic. Uh, and you, uh, I think you <clears throat> diagnosed or you, you isolated, you hit on the thing that will cause the panic, but it has to happen for the panic to be caused, which is some minimally defensible argument that this one is going to hit kids that this one, unlike the others, is going to have a virulence that will that will hit, uh, you know, children and people under the age of 18. Should that happen, there will be a general panic. Um, but of course, that would have to happen. I, I think I'm more with Noah than 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 you, Christine. I, I, I think that there is an every man for himself quality here and the quite maybe quite the opposite that the people in the room uh, coming up with the policy uh, story was effectively sourced to the CDC, um, maybe attempting to create a fait accompli that forces the president to be draconian. Uh, and, and so that tells you two things, one of which is they are not sure that he will be draconian and they want to they wanna push it. And the other is that they want to be draconian. And this is where the leadership question comes in, because now we are talking about trade-offs. To announce a policy of extreme restriction in advance of evidence of the, of the virulence and danger of this variant is effectively to announce that uh, all that matters are the test cases for Omicron and that there are no trade-offs. And here are the trade-offs. We're just coming out of this thing where the supply chain uh, problems are starting to heal themselves to the degree that Jay Powell, the head of the Fed, is now openly talking about, you know, sort of trying to close down or tighten up monetary policy <laughs> to slow down inflation. And, you know, job numbers were fantastic last week and all this. So all we need right now, all we need right now is the cloud or the shadow of another potential semi-lockdown, just as Christmas is coming, 
to punch a heart in the American heart, you know, to sort of punch a hole in the American psyche, to depress the country again, to reignite political battles between right and left over whether or not we should be doing this. It is nightmarish. And that is why Biden is a bad, weak leader and why the White House is bad at doing what it's doing, which is we should not be hearing from these people. This is these are political decisions that have to be made about the trade-off. The trade-off is there is a new variant. The other trade-off is there is all of American society 19 to 20 months after we started having to restructure American lives and livelihoods to deal with coronavirus. And some schlep at a desk in Atlanta should not be making policy about the entirety of the United States and, by the way, the planet, which is what Dr. Ketsia, the, who, uh, the South African doctor who wrote the op-ed, is essentially saying, which is, I said, uh-oh, here's another, here's another variant. I see it. It's got some you know, troubles on the spike protein. So far, it's pretty mild. We don't really see any evidence. And then her country is essentially you know, placed behind the WandaVision border that nobody can escape from in 12 hours. Yeah, you're like, describing, I mean, you've described a suicide, COVID as a suicide pact for this administration, most assuredly, and probably many others who would feel a significant amount of pain. But you're not describing a threat at all that's commensurate with this or with any other mitigation measure. To read from this woman's op-ed, no one in here in South Africa is known to have been hospitalized with the Omicron variant, nor is anyone here believed to have fallen seriously ill with it. That should be that. It should be over. This administration should have declared this over. The pandemic is endemic, seasonal, and not, no longer a threat to hospitals. Where it is a threat to hospitals, locally, then you introduce draconian mitigation measures. But right now, this abundance of caution approach, a blanket imposition, tremendous burden on people who uh, who have done everything right. Who well, have speaking who have behaved as the administration and past administration want them to behave. And they are constantly asked for more and more patients, though no one's even asking for it, just demanding more and more patients of them. And they think that this can go on forever. Speaking of hospitals, we one thing we, I think we forgot to add in all this is that uh, New York, New York's new governor, um, cut off elective surgeries in in hospitals days ago based on this elective surgeries is a broad category that 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 means people will suffer because they can't get get certain procedures done it's it, it only it just means that you all surgeries that are not emergencies Based you're not talking about that, facelifts yeah you're, you're talking right. about no, like, like a scheduled re- organ removal yeah, or no, or like you know, I am I am prone to kidney stones. Uh, some when kidney stones get too big, and sometimes they need they need a surgical removal. You need to go into an emergent. You have to go into an OR and get you know be put under and all of that. There is very little in the world that is more painful than a kidney stone. You suspend. Uh, I mean, it's not life threatening uh, unless it you know unless things go septic, but. Um, you know, you you suspend an elective surgery on a kidney stone, you are, and that is one of the main elective surgeries that people go through in the United States. You are 
you are consigning somebody to the seventh circle of hell in terms of pain that is very, very not not very mitigatable. And Kathy Hochul is just doing that because she's now locked in a in an election battle because she's running in 2022 and she wants to show leadership against Tish James, the attorney general, who is now making a lot of headlines because she's releasing all of this evidence and information from her investigation of of uh, of Andrew Cuomo claiming yet another scalp. Of course, we talked about this yesterday, Chris Cuomo uh, and and uh, and CNN and what was going to happen. And we said they got to get rid of him and they have now uh, suspended him uh, indefinitely. Um, it'll be interesting to see whether he ever. Con- I, I don't think that that uh, that that indefinite suspension is going to be sufficient unto the day um, as stories come out over the next three or four days, as they always do about other forms of Chris Cuomo's misbehavior and other things that he did that will be dropped by his enemies inside CNN to deliver the coup de grace and have them finally actually separate themselves from him formally. Can I can I just add one thing, though, to this idea that we need to also keep our eye on who the arguments made to expand powers because of a variant, because there has been a, a theme throughout this entire response to the pandemic now where there's a there's a core group of people, some of them in positions of power, most of them in the Democratic Party's coalition who have always wanted much more state authority, whether that's you know state government authority, but more importantly, federal government authority and overreach as a response. And I was struck by uh, Bloomberg politics uh, put out a piece just this morning that said the emergence of a new coronavirus coronavirus variant has provided some vindication for China's COVID zero approach, which has kept strict border controls in place since the start of the pandemic. This comes on the heels of Rochelle Walensky herself citing the obviously completely fictional COVID numbers that China has been churning out since the beginning of this pandemic as evidence for how they are handling these this better than we did. And the idea that the, that the country that started this thing is what we should be looking to in terms of solutions for how it governs its citizens. This is a country, China welded citizens into their homes to prevent them from coming out during the height of COVID. This should not be held up as an example for a free and democratic nation. And yet it is like this is where we are, that this can be said without any sort of controversy. Like, look how great China did. Reminded me of what something Walensky said yesterday, too, when when the directive out of this administration was project calm, not panic, which was the right response. And it took the president to make it. Um, She said yesterday, uh, quote, we have the tools and surveillance in place to identify the Omicron variant. We also have the tools to prevent Omicron from increasing the strain on our society and our healthcare system. That should be all that matters. And yet then we have this story, not 12 hours later, that no, we actually don't have the tools. We have to impose draconian travel restrictions on this border just in the the eventuality that maybe one of these mutations actually is really bad that we don't actually know if it's really bad or not. The manic um, unpredictability out of this administration is is sapping them of a quality that was essential to the value proposition of the Biden administration, which was stability and predictability. And that's gone. I want to I want to question whether you understood Walensky's quote correctly, because I think it goes to what Christine said when she said we have the tools to stop this in our tracks. I think she meant emergency powers. I don't You're think saying she, she means meant, hypothetically we have the tools at which we can I mean, yeah, hypothetically tools, we can yeah, we, yeah. hypothetically we can wipe nations off the planet. You wouldn't I'm do saying, it. I'm saying but we have what, the tools. 
what I'm saying is she means the president can wave his hand and announce that no one is allowed to be evicted. That would that power was given to me, according to him, back in you know June or whenever it was. We said that's, uh, the that's CDC, silly though. That's that tool was was taken out of the toolbox by the Supreme yeah, Court. Right. But but uh, as my friend Adam White, as our friend Adam White told me last night by email, when you're talking about border crossings, all of the, which is what we're talking about in terms of the most draconian stuff in this proposal, right? Which is that American citizens coming back can be compelled to quarantine or face fines for not obeying the diktats at the board, right? That border crossings, courts have traditionally given the executive branch very wide latitude on matters controlling the border. There are different pieces of of, there are different pieces of legislation uh, that that give them that power. And so theoretically saying to someone, go into your house and lock your door and don't see anybody and have people slide food under the door or we'll fine you five hundred dollars, which is by the way what they what they do in Israel. Israel doesn't have a constitution. We have a constitution. Um, I think that all sorts of things are implicated in this that you could really have a showdown on, which is, I think, why. I suspect that Biden, what we hear tomorrow from Biden isn't going to be a lot of this, really. I mean, you could have you could have Congress saying that this is an unconstitutional abrogation of the interstate commerce clause. You could have First Amendment, you know, preventing me from attending my house of worship now that my house of worship is open by demanding that I quarantine without any evidence that I am diseased. I mean, there are there are 10,000 things that this violates unless you think that there is a clear and present danger to the health and safety of the United States. And until Omicron proves to be that danger, measures that are being taken proactively to face it are outrageous. Now, they're not, they're, they're still being projected for the future, which means that he and maybe this is it. Maybe it's just vaporware, like I think essentially the OSHA mandate is going to prove to be, which is you announce you're doing this in a couple of months to answer or address a specific problem on the day to show you're showing leadership. And then when it all fades, you kind of just it just goes away before you actually have to do it. Right. He's already said they're not firing people in the federal government or putting them on leave or whatever before Christmas if they don't get vaccinated and all that. So it's already dribbling away the big speech about how we don't, we can't wait. We have to do something serious. And you could have an announcement, some kind of announcement tomorrow that takes that sort of like clicks in in a couple of months that they can just quietly dispense with uh, if Omicron doesn't turn into a turn into a disaster because they're looking at their polls and they see that Biden's only positive area in his polling is the handling of the virus. And they think that means he needs to show leadership on the virus and showing leadership on the virus. Isn't saying we have to live with this virus. It is time for us to live with this virus, which is what Boris Johnson said in September. He said, it's enough. We've had enough. This virus is going to be around. We have to live with it. That's also a form of leadership because, by, by the way, because it draws, it can draw attack. Uh, you show leadership by being willing to say something that may be unpopular, including with your own people, because you're saying, I'm doing this uh, uh, across lines 
because I believe it to be the right thing. Now, whether Biden believes anything to be the right thing is a different question. But 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 might there not already be people who have so overinvested in the Omicron panic that they're going to potentially already have egg on their face very soon if and when the the two week period passes and it's confirmed by, you know, all relevant parties that that this this wasn't the threat that we thought it was. Is it aren't aren't they already going to suffer a bit? Who's going well, to I mean, but Biden, Biden sort of crafted a mixed met, you know, Biden himself uh, tried to get out there and say, well, let's not panic. But but we'll see what what he says. And and I don't I don't I don't know how this is going to how people are going to react to this. Well, listen, uh, all the polling that we show that we had ahead of the 2021 elections suggested that American adults were perfectly happy to close schools. They didn't care. The circumstances justified it. The people with skin in the game were very unhappy with that. And the people with skin in the game voted. The adults didn't. And if it takes another election to demonstrate that one side of this debate is far more energized than the other, then it's what it's going to take. But they can only see political consequences. They can't see anything else. I, look, there, there, are, there are all kinds of different versions of political consequences. There's the election, but that really doesn't happen until 2022, except for whatever specials go on until November 2022. But, you know, there is this gigantic uh, uh, agenda, uh, list of agenda items that Congress has to get to in December. The defense bill, the debt ceiling, the, the this, this, that. There's like 20 things that they're supposed to do in a now completely paralyzed Congress that has been focused, you know, so crazily on the build back better controversy and um, inter interrupt all of this with a panic on Omicron, which will then have members of Congress announcing that they tested positive and going home or they having the, you know, like you think you can do regular order business with the, with the country in a panic. They pushed all this stuff down. Their politicians they're going to look terrible. They're going to look just terrible. They, they're not getting anything done. They're all screaming and yelling in panic. The Republicans are going to start attacking the Democrats properly for being, you know, chicken littles or whatever. And um, the country is going to suffer. And then let's see how Biden's next year agenda goes for him. As Mansion and cinema get even further away from feeling like there is any reason for them to make any common cause with the leaders of their own party. I, it's pretty. It's pretty serious. Like there are more political consequences that are that that can be delivered than just by an election. Okay, let me interrupt this conversation and myself to discuss Dan Sunor's really superb new podcast, which is just a, a new iteration of his old podcast. His old podcast being post-corona, the new one, Call Me Back. The theme of the new podcast is lessons from history that will uh, illuminate and explain uh, where we are at present and where we are going in the future as we emerge from the pandemic era. And that first really brilliant conversation in the series of Call Me Back podcasts is out with Neil Ferguson the not Irish, but rather Scottish American historian, economic uh, historian, 
a biographer of Henry Kissinger, author of a really splendid book called Doom on the History of Pandemics, and um, in a really fascinating, wide-ranging discussion, uh, Dan and Neil go into the parallels between the present uh, as we attempt to emerge from the virus and past experiences, in particular, the analog between our uh, 2020s and the 1970s as we look at where the economy is and the hapless political solutions tried by political leaders to deal with fiendishly difficult problems like inflation and the like. That is the Call Me Back podcast with Dan Senor, first episode with Neil Ferguson from Scotland and America, uh, one, now, of course, involved with the fledgling University of Austin, though also a scholar at the Hoover Institution. Go to Apple, Google Play, Stitcher to subscribe and download. If you are currently a subscriber to Dan's post-corona podcast, Call Me Back will simply be there when you need it right in its place. So that is Neil Ferguson, Dan Senor, Call Me Back, give a listen. You will be happy that you did so. By the way, I I'd mentioned yesterday that um, there, there had been an interesting... Uh, shot across the bow CNN from its new corporate chieftain or the guy who will soon be its corporate chieftain, David Zaslav, the head of discovery networks, um, you know, who's essentially taking over uh, Warner media and um, Zaslav had given this interview in which he said, I, you know, I want straight news. I think it's really, there's a, there's really a place in the marketplace for straight news, not all this opinion stuff and all of that. As it happens, uh, the news stories tell me, Zaslav has been around this week having meetings in New York with uh, CNN, with Warner corporate chieftains and people at CNN. He is apparently an old friend of Jeff Zucker, the guy who runs CNN. Uh, and I don't know whether that means that the news came out and Chris Cuomo was a sacrificial lamb to David Zaslav's uh, new directive or whether uh, somebody was attempting to send a signal to David Zaslav that they didn't want to lose their jobs over Chris Cuomo or whether this actually was a, an effort to do the right thing um, in relation to Chris Cuomo. Uh, of course, months ago, Jeff Zucker said he understood that Chris Cuomo had to be a brother first. And, you know, it's understandable. He's a brother first and a, and a political host second, where you know, news host second, which is, uh, by the way, an interesting uh, way of talking about this because there is a way, and I've been involved in it myself, that people whose relatives and relations are involved in news stories deal with news stories. And that is called recusal. You say, uh, I can't talk about this because my brother is the governor of New York. Or um, somebody else needs to host my show for the next couple of weeks because my, my brother is the governor of New York. This is a major news story. I cannot, in good conscience, serve two masters here, my family and my job. And so I will pull myself out of this. But that's not what happened. And you know, by the way, it's not what happened at CNN last summer. They thought they had lightning in a bottle because they had the most popular Democratic politician in America, the anti-Trump, the hero of covid uh, Andrew Cuomo, and they had this 
guy at night who was his brother. So they had uh, unusual access to the dreamboat of the liberals, the hero of COVID who buried the fact that his policy killed 10, you know, five, six, 7,000 people in nursing homes, knew he had done it and buried the fact so that he and his brother could have happy, giggly conversations on air. So CNN took total advantage of the brother of the brotherhood brotherliness. And then when he got into trouble because of the brotherliness, maybe in some form of, um, you know, feeling in his debt in that way, uh, didn't immediately cashier him because they had, of course, made use of it when it was useful to them. Which means that David Zosloff should clean house. Got a clean house like this is we now we got Tubin, we've got we've got Chris Cuomo, um, this this network and uh, Jeff Zucker, who is an extraordinarily corrupt news executive in general. Uh, I know Zaslav is his friend and all of that. Uh, it, it it stinks from the head, it rots from the head, and and if he really wants to, and by the way, CNN's doing so crappily in the ratings. I don't know why you wouldn't clean house. But I Chris mean, Cuomo I'm, no, I'm no programming has expert a here. Sixth of, uh, a sixth of the audience of Hannity. One sixth. CNN makes a lot of money, right? It makes a lot of money really because of licensing fees from cable companies. If that's the case, then it'll make that money the day after they fire everybody and just hire a new as it does now, if they've got incredibly low ratings, like, you know, you could put on a test pattern would get the same ratings as, as Chris Cuomo. But so it's straight Cuomo. news. I'm no programming expert, but we have no evidence to suggest that this trend now in liberal cable news networks towards straight news, even in prime time, is what the audiences want. No, no network that has tried to do that to reduce its commentary and up its straight news programming has succeeded in the ratings because they're a the problem isn't that people don't get enough news. There's a million sources to get straight news if you want them and not everybody wants it. It's a very select audience. And B, when they do their programming, that's commentary. They're all chasing the same audience. They're all slicing up a small share of this of the pie. And nobody seems to be able to accept the idea that there's an audience out there that wants actual uh, conflict. <laughs> I mean, all of a sudden, somebody forgot that conflict is key to having compelling programming, and they don't have that anywhere in cable, even in, even in Fox. But Fox has a lot of it more more than you would see on MSNBC or CNN. And to say that, well, we just have to get rid of all conflict and all compelling programming whatsoever, and just stick with straight information relation. That's not as compelling programming strategy unless you just want, like you said, a test pattern, a, a, a trophy on the wall. OK, let me let me make the counter argument to you. Remember, I said that the lion's the lion's share of CNN's profits do not come from advertising. They come from licensing fees from cable companies, but. They do have a lot of advertising revenue and that advertising revenue has often been higher per capita than Fox's or MSNBC's because they have a, uh, an arguable claim uh, that their audience is a little younger, more affluent, and a little less crazy. Uh, CNBC makes a fortune 
with a vastly smaller audience than any of the you know general news networks um i think cnbc made 300 million dollars in profit last year i think fox business also makes a lot of money but not not quite i, I don't know where that is but because it is perceived that uh, if you advertise on CNBC, you're going to be fine. You're not going to get into trouble and you're going to reach an affluent audience that you want and therefore they can char charge a high CPM. If CNN went high instead of low, its claim could be, yeah, we have 500,000 people watching instead of 3 million, but they're the right 500,000. We get our cable licensing fees and we can double our ad rate because we have all these highly sophisticated people watching who are affluent and all of that. that. That would be the case to make, which is that you're not just, you know, you're not a broadcaster. It's a cable network. And, 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 and by the way, competing with MSNBC, which is a much more successful network in your zone, CNN is already supposedly occupying this middle zone. So Zaslav would not be wrong to double down on the middle zone, which is you're crazy on the left, you're crazy on the right. Here's suburban voter who votes for Trump in 2016 and then votes Democratic in 2018 and votes for Biden in 2020. You can watch me because that is, that is their brand. That's what they tell themselves their brand. I is. know, but they're not doing but it. Obviously, and, that's not what they're doing, but they right, tell themselves so that's what they're doing. They think, it doesn't by, matter. they think by not being rabid liberals that they're in the middle of the road. But they are rabid liberals. They're just not <laughs> right, as good But they at assume the middle CNN of the room is rabidly as, liberal. As MSNBC. I'm saying that I, I, I would just make this point again, not to be boring, but Zaslav's genius as a cable programmer is making anodyne programming that is popular in red states. DIY channels, HGTV, Discovery. These are networks that profit because they sell, they're watched in places where CNN and Fox viewers might tune in to see either My 600 Pound Life or, um, uh, you know, uh, Love It or List It or a Flip or Flop or whatever. Like that's, that's his gold. And uh, that is not something to be sneered at. Um, and for some reason, uh, because of the, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I think Jeff Zucker is not good at his job and has never, he wasn't good as a programmer at NBC. He wasn't, all he was good at was like extending Thursday night programming to 40 minutes so he could get more commercials in it when NBC was profitable. Um, he's one of these guys who fails upward and fails upward and fails upward. And he has basically taken CNN and dr driven it into the toilet. And now, you know, uh, last year, the whole story with Jeff Zucker was when is he going to go? Because look at the disaster that he has inflicted on CNN. And then suddenly Zaslav bought, you know, became the head of the new company. And it's like, oh, he's his close friend. So I guess he's going to stay. I don't know. Anyway, I'm just saying like there is a, there is a case to be made that this is a moment at which as there is a ch corporate change at the head of CNN and as there is a corporate change, as there is a crisis moment in which the entire primetime lineup is tainted and stained by the fact that the lead anchor on CNN was conspiring with the hit person staff 
of the governor of New York to get dirt on accusers using his CNN connections. Everybody associated with him under ordinary circumstances would have to go. When Jason Blair was revealed as the plagiarist he was, Howell Reigns had to go. It wasn't just Jason Blair who had to go. The person who empowered him had to go. Chris Cuomo will do what Chris Cuomo will do because he's Chris Cuomo. Who lets Chris Cuomo do it? That's the question. And what does it say about his management and stewardship of the network that this, that this happened under his watch, in his office building? But it's not just CNN that has a problem with how Cuomo was covered. Uh, we also heard yesterday that Katie Tur of NBC News read almost verbatim on air talking points that were being distributed by Cuomo's crisis team uh, to get him to get the heat off of him for some of these allegations and and in in his handling of his of his governorship. So it's it the rot in the media culture is is goes far beyond CNN and and however it en- ends up handling Chris Cuomo the the uh, the wagon circling the the willingness to kind of cover for politicians whose whose agendas conform to those of of the people who work at these networks is still still an issue because it means again it means that the only people have to look for other alternatives Fox News is not always the best alternative on some of this stuff because they go extreme in the other direction. So people are looking for sources that don't aren't just reading the propaganda from one side or the other. Right. Well, I mean, there is there is the case, uh, you know, we get a lot of, uh, you know, emails from the RNC and from the political committees and stuff like that. And I had moments when particularly sort of like listening to the radio or something like that to certain conservative talk show hosts, for example, I'm listening and they're talking and I realize that they're reading the press release from the RNC that I just read five minutes earlier on my desktop without saying I'm reading this from the RNC. They're just literally channeling word by word the propaganda that has been sent to them. So this is a this is the problem with this blending of, you know, opinion and whatever. And and also not only a blending of opinion with news, but the but the now assumption of uh, partisan or you know uh, opinionated people uh, that they are part and parcel of a political organization that they are attempting to promote either the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, which really is a change that was not a thing really until the 1980s or even a little later. That that sort of the people who promulgated the opinion culture in the United States still had a measure of distance from specific, you know, from like the Republican National Committee. They weren't mouthpieces for the Republican National Committee. And 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 now they are. And you know who's not a mouthpiece for anything is our friend David Bonson. David Bonson of the Bonson Group, that antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management industry, uh, is somebody who tells it like it is based on his own deep understanding of uh, economics, markets, the interplay between them, and uh, and the political behavior of uh, authoritarians, totalitarians, and democratic politicians. And a lot of that wisdom has been distilled in his new book, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths, a great present here in the holiday season for anyone who wants to understand how economic principles, great thoughts, great ideas, and uh, and 
the faith traditions of the West, how they all come together to create um, uh, a structure for uh, human flourishing and the uh, fullest expression of the liberties that uh, God granted us. That is, there's no free lunch, 250 Economic Truths by David Bonson. Get it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, get a hardcover, download the Kindle. That's B-A-H-N-S-E-N. If you got to enter it into your, into your search screen, uh, and, uh, and really this, uh, th this is a, a fantastic gift, uh, for your young, sprightly cousin, nephew, niece, who needs to be put on the proper path. So that's what I would say to uh, There's no free lunch by David Bonson. So, I, uh, yeah. Can I just uh, hey, please make a, a point about this question about whether people want, straight news. Um, it's something that you hear constantly and have been hearing for a long time. I, they said the news used to be just the news, you know, which is a myth in itself, but that's, that's the idea. And I, I want that if, if there were, if there was a channel or a newspaper like that, again, I would just read it. I would watch it. Um, I, first off, I wonder if that's true. If, 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 if that is what they want, or they would want uh, what they consider to be just uh, straight news and uh, how fast they would they would deem it uh, something else if if they didn't like what they were seeing, but second it would be a fascinating experiment because I I wonder how long such a project would last before the dominant cultural forces today kind of wrestle it into being another partisan organ. Of course, it's not true. It, it, the, 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 those, all, those venues exist and they struggle. Um, what is true is that people want information silos. They want to be fed the information that they want. And the only way to avoid that is to have compelling programming that pits individuals with distinct points of view against each other so that they express them. That's the only way to get that information out. And when you have conflict on television, it does well. I'm not breaking any ground here. The idea, the, the idea that people actually respond to conflict as a source of entertainment is not a earth shattering revelation. And it does very well in primetime on cable news. I don't understand why this, where this impulse came from among programmers that we keep okay. hearing that we're, we gotta go back to basics here as though that's what, what the people are clamoring I, for. Okay, you don't understand the impulse. The impulse is that everybody knows that this stuff that they're being thrown 24 hours a day is garbage. That's the impulse. And I just want to point out that this is a country of 333 million people, right? I'm talking CNN, Andrew Cuomo, uh, Andrew, Chris Cuomo, 600,000 people watched Chris Cuomo the other night. 600,000 people is 0 0.001, or that's one, what is that? One one hundredth of a percent of the population of the United States. You are telling me that a news channel couldn't get the same ratings as, as Chris Cuomo. I don't believe that's right. It's a question of who the audience is. Could you get 600,000 people to be a more disguised version of the liberal media, which is sort of what Abe's talking about, because of course that's what would happen. 
all that goes to news selection, what kind of stories you tell. You know, it's it's like the the classic thing with uh, Daryl Brooks, the accused uh, car killer in Waukesha. We talked about this earlier. Where are the stories about Daryl Brooks's past? Where are the stories about his, uh, you know, the uh, the warrants weren't out against him in Nevada? Why aren't we hearing about where he went to high school? Why aren't we? Why aren't his ex-wives or his old girlfriends being interviewed? Why isn't he a major story? Because obviously. If he had been a white guy driving into a crowd of black people, there would be literally nothing about his life that we would not know. Well, forget even being a murderer. If he was a kid from a Catholic school visiting the Lincoln Memorial, the New York Times has covered that story in greater detail than it's covered the murder of all these innocent people at a parade. It's going a little far afield to media bias as opposed to a programming strategy. Just to just to close, my supposition has some evidence to support it, although it's conflicted by the fact that it was the Trump era and everybody was very invested in the Trump era as a news source, as a news story. But briefly, in the early period of the Trump era, media outlets, especially cable news outlets, committed themselves to having diverse points of view on the air because they were shocked and horrified by the extent to which they no longer understood the country they were covering. And cable news ratings exploded. They did very well. Now, is that all a result of the conflict on air? Probably not. A lot of it has to do with trepidation about the Trump era. And a lot of people were very invested in the news cycle. But I don't think you can separate the two things because it produced compelling programming, which no longer exists anywhere on the dial. I'm not saying that conflict isn't a good way to drive TV programming. And you don't have conflict without conflicting points of view, which is also I'm how saying, you get information silos to break apart. I'm just telling you that David Zaslav, who is the most successful nonfiction television programmer in the history of television, maybe he was blowing it, you know, maybe he was just talking argle bargle to sound good to his interviewer. He said there is room for this. And if he meant it, he has some real reason to believe it because this guy, everything he touches turns to gold. And he is a nonfiction programmer. That's what he does. Jeff Zucker did the Today Show, which is nonfiction programming in the sense that there's a recipe and then there's Matt Lauer harassing somebody behind the scenes. And then there's Katie Couric insulting all the female staffers. That's the Today Show. Then he goes and runs NBC Entertainment where he doesn't he doesn't introduce a single hit, but he makes friends three and a half hours long so that they can sell commercial time. And then he's fired there. And then he goes to CNN, which he also drives into the toilet. So maybe you go with somebody else who has a different idea about how to do this, who has actually succeeded in television and may have an interesting perspective on how to do it differently is all I am saying. I'm also going to say that Jeff Zucker's retirement would be much more enjoyable if he did it in an X chair. He could give himself an X chair now, a gift that keeps on giving him joy and comfort every day, all year long, as he considers his deserved unemployment, should that happen. A gift that looks as good as it feels and a gift that will actually pay for itself in terms of how much more productive he would be at work even though he won't be at work. I'm talking about giving him the gift of an X chair. I absolutely love mine. It's by far the most comfortable and ergonomic chair I've ever used. And honestly, 
probably also the coolest looking piece of furniture I own. Not only is X-Chair the world's greatest office chair, but with its patented LMX technology, it doubles as a massage chair and can either cool or warm your back. Can your office chair do that? I don't think so. Now is the perfect time to purchase an X-Chair. Buy early, buy now. And here's X-Chair's holiday gift to you. Save $100 off your X-Chair just by purchasing it at xchaircommentary.com. Now that's the letter X, the word chair commentary.com x chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort and you can finance your purchase for as little as 30 dollars a month go to xchaircommentary.com and save xchaircommentary.com so uh uh interesting thing to watch culturally and then we can close on this First reviews are out of the Steven Spielberg West Side Story uh, with a screenplay by Tony Kushner and, of course, music by Leonard Bernstein and lyrics by the recently deceased Steven Sondheim. Uh, uh, Spielberg Swing for the Fences, the original, won 10 Oscars and won the Best Picture Oscar. This is his first remake. Um, early notices are ecstatic and, of course, uh, because uh, the movie was written by America's most celebrated playwright, um, himself a, uh, a gay socialist of, uh, of impeccably PC standing, um, there, you know, there is some thought that this thing is golden. But there is fine, it's starting because there is a piece in the New York Times this morning where five people debate the question of whether or not we should be allowed to see West Side Story because of its treatment of Latinos and the stories in this, in, in this piece are kind of astounding where somebody says uh, she, she's Dominican and then she came to the United States and someone said, are you Puerto Rican? And that was a microaggression and they only thought she was Puerto Rican because of West Side Story. Why that's a story about West Side Story, I don't know, but I wrote a column back in March in which I said after the ridiculous controversy surrounding uh, In the Heights, Lin-Manuel Miranda's In the Heights, at how that movie had um, had othered, or not othered, but uh, what do you call it, like had, had, uh, had uh, disappeared among the many Latinos portrayed in Washington Heights in the movie, Afro-Cubans, dark-skinned Cubans. Uh, they had been disappeared, and they weren't there, and therefore the movie was ideologically monstrous that uh, I didn't see how Steven Spielberg, a Jew, Tony Kushner, a Jew, uh, working off material by Leonard Bernstein, Arthur Lawrence, Jerome Robbins, and Steven Sondheim, all Jews, how they were going to get away with uh, in 2021 being the creators and the, the authors of the source material of something that dealt with um, racial conflict in the 1950s between Puerto Ricans and white kids on the on the Upper West Side. And this thing in the New York Times today represents the first salvo in the potential cancellation of West Side Story. Um, it looks really good. I say that with some pain because I loathe Tony Kushner, but uh, though he wrote a great screenplay for Lincoln and he is very talented. Anybody have any thoughts on whether or not Spielberg is so august and the, the source material is so iconic and Kushner is so uh, unassailable ideologically 
that uh, they can they can escape the potential trap of the cancellation? I mean, they can escape it if it's a if it's good. I mean, if the product is good, it will transcend. And the heights was good. All this nonsense. Nah, it had a select audience. This is a this is a gigantic. They're going for a, literally the the uh, the entire music musical consuming movie watching population here. This this doesn't turn anyone off in part. And when I saw the trailer, I was shocked by how much I enjoyed it because it wasn't a remake per se. It didn't re-envision this thing. It didn't set it in a different time period. It didn't change the races or the genders of the characters with the notable exception of Rita Moreno, but who cares? As it was a minor part anyway. Um, generally, it's not what you do if you want to get theatrical acclaim. It's what you do if you want to be a smash commercial success. And that's the sort of thing that people hate. They hate smash commercial successes, especially right, people who aren't uh, observing the tenets of modern progressivism in the process. And so there will be an attempt to cancel oh, it, I'm quite you sure. Know, you, we don't know anything about this movie yet. You know it observes the tenets of modern progressivism. Not if it I adheres to no the book. Doubt. No, Kushner's written a new screenplay. I have no doubt. It looked like it adhered almost to the from the trailer. It looked like it adhered very closely to the book. Let me just That's a trick, Noah. It's a trick. Let me let me just put it this way. You think in this one that the that the movie won't side with the Puerto Rican with the sharks as opposed to the Jets? The natural structure of West Side Story uh is that it kind of puts you on the side of the Jets. Uh in fact, because of othering, because because the because the sharks come from elsewhere and they're there and they're both thugs and terrible and all of that, but you're sort of naturally driven into a position of sympathy also because Tony, our hero, was a jet and he doesn't really want to be a jet, but it's he's a jet and so he's the, he has to end, end up fighting on the side of the jets. This whole movie is going to be restructured so that the jets are bad and the sharks are good. I will, I will bet you... A trillion dollars. Not, not, no, by the not, way, not by no. the way that that's not a legitimate way to tell the story. Actually, yeah, sure. Okay, but- I don't remember feeling a whole lot of uh, sympathies for either the Montagues or the Capulets. Um, they're both rather despicable, so I can't imagine that it would really overturn the plot line very much. But perhaps. But if if it if it does hold up and it doesn't get canceled or or you know uh, suffer harm because it's it's not it's not PC enough, that would be a very good thing because. We're talking about a fictional story now, but in New York right now, we see history itself being reworked at the Tenement Museum in particular, which I don't know if any of you, I love this museum. I used to love this museum. Fantastic museum, which recreates what it was like to live in a tenement um, in the country and, and, you know, turn of the century. Peter Van Buren, who worked there for a while as an educator, wrote a great piece in The Spectator recently about it. They're taking one of the rooms. So this was it shows generations of of Jewish, Irish immigrant, all the different uh, waves of immigrants that came and and, uh, lived and prospered in in New York. Because it didn't include African-Americans, they are rewriting the history of the museum. They're recreating a new room that has nothing to do with the historical record of who lived in tenements in New York City at this time to satisfy this demand for for appearing woke, for appearing sensitive to racial issues. It's horrifying. I I mean, as a historian, it drives me absolutely nuts when people do this. There are lots of museums that do cover those issues correctly. We have a wonderful uh, African-American history museum here in D.C. that does that. You can go there for free. But to take a, a, a 
place that showed in, in amazing and extraordinary detail how people lived and survived and thrived in this country when they came here as immigrants and to wreck it for the sake of, of contemporary ideological uh, goals is, is terrible. So I really do hope West Side Story doesn't get canceled, but we're canceling our real history. So I'm not optimistic. Right. That Pierre Van Buren think- piece is in the New York Post today, by the way, if you want to look it up. Um, there is definitely going to be a campaign to cancel West Side Story. And it's going to be big and vocal. Um, and so there's going to be a battle. Uh, the question is, what happens? Um, you know, if if people see it and love it, it's by definition a failed campaign, right? Uh, as long as theaters don't pull it, right? Um, so it, I, th- I think it, it really does, in this case, come come down to how much people like it. But we're, uh, we're going to we're going to see essays and articles and programs, yeah. of, of, you know, definitely. The Tenement Museum story, just to finish up, if you haven't been to the Tenement Museum, it literally took a tenement, an 1883 tenement, uh, you know, which is a five story building. Um, and uh, each floor has either one or two apartments that are that are meticulously recreated to look like the apartments of the time. And there's a floor that has an Irish that would be the uh, uh, the floor, the, the apartment that an Irish family, which might have seven, eight, nine, ten children is in. Then the f- floor has a Jewish family. This is this the Lower East Side on uh, I think it's on Orchard Street um, and and uh, and then sort of a generic one. There's an and, Italian uh, one, Italian. too. Italian. Italian one. Right. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. An Italian one. Right. So that which is like the Godfather part two. If you remember, it looks like the apartment that um you see um fredo uh, coughing in uh, as a baby um and uh they're building a new floor i believe to add a to add a tenement apartment for black people who would not have lived in this neighborhood ever and uh according to peter van buren um one of the docents or one of the fellow guides wanted to add all sorts of information about her family past as an immigrant. Uh, she's, I believe, Chinese or no, she's Japanese uh, and the uh, daughter of um, university professors and uh, therefore came in in an entirely different fashion uh, as a, as a, you know, as like a, a, a middle class, you know, and, and, and post-war and all of that. And so suddenly this then turns into her story because everybody has a story and it is poison. I mean, it is, this is absolute poison. And by the way, the erasure, once the, the interesting thing is we're talking about erasing people. So um, in New York City in 2015, 27% of the population of New York City was foreign born. It was the largest city in the world and 27% of the population was foreign born. That story is the story that the Tenement Museum tells. It is a story of the struggling lives of the foreign born who came to the United States to make a better life and it was hard and these were these were unpleasant places to live. And they were disgusting often, and there were too many people living them and all of that. And it is a tribute not to Americans, you know, and the wonderful, you know, it's not some kind of, you know, Disney World, 1915 Main Street 
with parades. It is the struggling hardships of people from other places, often oppressed, who came here to try to make a life for themselves. And changing that story is is a form of culture of a form of cultural genocide. It's literal. Er- it, it's literal erasure too. In this case, it's not the argument that you hear a lot of sort of anti-racist people say. We're just going to add to the curriculum. We're going to add this story of this black family that never actually lived here, but we're just going to throw them in there to satisfy demand. They're actually erasing part of the Irish family tour. They're changing the tour about the Irish family that lived in that in in that area in order to um, uh, compromise the story in this way. So. It is it's eliminating a history, a bit of history that's really important for people to understand, not just because it's not about race, but because it's about class, too. It's about immigration. It's about it's about class uh, issues. It's about the fact that if you were an Irish Catholic who came to New York at that time, you faced hostility and racism because you were Irish from the Protestant majority. I mean, all of those stories are part of our American experience and to erase it because now Irish people are considered white, right? White, white adjacent. They weren't considered white when they came here. And that's part of the history that a lot of Americans. Americans need to understand how people, uh, how people's understanding of race has changed over time. Um, that's should and is remains largely a positive story, but this is a way of, of diluting it and erasing it so that the people will not learn that part of our past. Yeah, nobody in the, nobody in that museum was white. <laughs> the Irish family wasn't white. The Italians weren't white. The uh, yeah, the uh, Jewish family wasn't white. Uh, no, not to the uh, Anglo-Saxon Protestant majority for sure. Um, but yeah, that story has to be now amended to reflect our modern understanding of what whiteness is well i'm really glad we're ending on such a high note uh, of our uh, cultural self-destruction um but we'll be back to depress you even further tomorrow uh for abe christine noah i'm john podhoritz keep the candle burning